Welcome to the Beyond the Game podcast. I'm Harold Aubin. I'm the senior editor of Prep to Prep Sports. I'm joined by a couple of guys that really, really know football. I'll tell you a lot better than I do. One of them is Brandon Huffman. Brandon is the national recruiting editor for 24-7 Sports uh, CBS. And he's, he's been around for 20 years and nobody is more knowledgeable about recruiting, particularly in the Western states, but his, his knowledge goes well beyond the Western states. Welcome, Brandon. Thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on, fellas. Thank you, Brandon. Also joined by my colleague, Nate Smith. Uh, Nate's going to be our moderator. Nate uh, is a former high school and college football coach. Uh, he's currently the athletic director at Heritage High School in Brentwood, and he is the content editor for Prep to Prep. Nate, thanks for moderating. All right. Thank you, Harold. Thank you, Brandon. You know, um, we, you know we're really excited to have Brandon on here. Brandon, your national expertise. And, you know, in, in some years that doesn't necessarily mean a lot, depending on who's coming out of the Bay Area here in Northern California. But this year, I think it really falls right in your wheelhouse. You know, when we look at the you know top 10 to 15 signees during this early signing period and you know i kind of want to give you the the green light to talk about some of these guys but to me one of the things that jumps off the charts um two two kind of bullet points when i look at this early signing class here in northern california or especially talking about the bay area and one is that cal did a very good job recruiting its backyard um really you know four to five guys out of the bay area who you know are real could be some home run hitters there but the other thing is that despite Cal doing such a great job, we're still seeing, you know, the, the, some of those top 10 recruits leaving the area for an elite SEC program with Brock Bowers going to Georgia. Um, you always expect maybe somebody going to Notre Dame, and sure enough, that's the case with Will Schweitz out of Los Gatos. Um, you know, and so we see these guys, of course, Antioch's real big 6'7DN, Jalen Weaver going to Nebraska. You know, is, is this something you would categorize as sort of the, the normal movement year to year? Um, and how would you describe the way, you know, Cal recruited this area and the guys they have coming in? I mean, you look at the All-American list that have been coming out this week. You've got two Bay Area guys, two East Bay guys, and they're on that All-American list playing for Alabama and for Notre Dame. You know, you got Najee Harris from Antioch at Alabama. You have Aaron Banks from El Cerrito at Notre Dame. And so what you see there is the consistency – that those East Bay kids that have left the Bay Area and left the Pac-12 footprint have really flourished, whether you're going back to, you know, Joe Mixon a few years ago, being an All-American at Oklahoma. You, you've seen so many of those players make that move, and it pay off handsomely. Um, you know, you mentioned Brock Bowers going down to Georgia. I mean, this is a program that last year got the top tight end out West in Darnell Washington from Las Vegas. This year they go back to the West and they get Brock Bowers. And, you know, he's a player that, is kind of a microcosm of what the Pac-12 has been dealing with the last few years. He had, I think, six of the eight Pac-12 schools were in his final eight, and the two that weren't were Penn State and Georgia. I think Notre Dame might have been in there too, but, you know, you have all these Pac-12 schools, but then you have the allure of national schools, and that's hard to pass on, especially when you see guys having success. You know, you mentioned Jalen Weaver going to Nebraska. Will Schweitzer was once committed in Nebraska, but he flips to Notre Dame. So it's just... I think the Bay Area kids and Northern California kids in general have never really feared leaving the region. And maybe that's because Stanford recruits nationally. Maybe that's because Cal 
in the last few years and under Sonny Dykes maybe didn't focus on the base. So Bay kids felt their best option and sometimes their only option was to leave. But I just have felt that Bay Area kids, of all the kids in the state of California, have the easiest time transitioning when they move away to school. That said, I, I think, you, you know, when you mentioned Cal and the work that they did, what I thought was most significant wasn't just how well they did in the Bay Area, but really just in Northern California in general, getting, I think, four players from Sacramento as well. And that's something that Sonny Dykes really struggled with. It wasn't – he didn't just recruit – the Bay Area, you know, his ties were all in Texas, whereas Justin Wilcox comes in with a lot of coaches that have that Northern California, Northwest, West Coast kind of experience and is able to get guys like Jermaine Terry. And, and I mean, I don't think people understand what a recruiting win that was for Cal to not just get him in February when he had, he's fresh off offers from Ohio State and Oklahoma and Alabama and Michigan and all the Pac-12 schools, but then to hold on to him. You know, as of the night before, two nights before signing day, there was a strong possibility he was going to go to Arizona State. And Cal kept him in the boat to get a guy like, you know, Caleb Higgins, who's a Texan by you know, Texan native, to get him to stay on board, to, you know, go in and get Nikili Calhoun, who had a number of Pac 12 offers, to, you know, getting those guys, uh, but also going over to, to Sacramento and getting Caleb, or I'm, I'm sorry, to get a, um, Moses Oladejo. Um, a couple of Sacramento yep. guys, and then more importantly, to keep a couple of those Bay Area guys like Caleb Elarmzor, who I thought was a, is a fantastic player. We've got him as a top 20 player in the state, um, a, a player that I think, you know, might be underappreciated. We got him as a four-star. Other sites have him lower, but I don't think people realize just how good of a football player he is. And I think losing that spring evaluation period probably hurt his recruitment a bit, but that's another significant win. He – the day before he committed to Cal, he told me he was going to Colorado. And really, the course of the next 24 hours, Cal just said, this is where you want to be. Stay here. So to be able to keep a couple key Bay Area guys that normally Cal might have lost, I think that even with Rock Bowers and Troy Franklin, Franklin leaving the Bay, what Cal did in Northern California has to be encouraging for Justin Wilcox and his, his staff moving forward. Yeah, and you really hit the nail on the head, though, not not just the Bay Area, not just the East Bay, but all of Northern California. And for, you know, some of our listeners might not know, you know, Caleb Higgins, outstanding DB there at Folsom, uh, Moses Oladejo, Consumnes Oaks there, um, fantastic linebacker. And they also got a great tight end out of Jesuit um, in Kalekulatu there. Um, really an all-around terrific class. And um, it's funny you mentioned Elarms Orr as a possibly an underrated guy. He's a guy who's just been doing nothing but making plays and getting to the quarterback from the time he was a freshman there at Moreau Catholic and, you know, flew under people's radar. But I think he exploded as a sophomore with like 18, 19 sacks and really started turning heads. Um, and possibly another one, you know, that could possibly fly under the radar for Cal, uh, big name, be Lumagia Hearns out of De La Salle. Um, another guy that, you know, you know, really a DB probably at the next level, but just a playmaker. And once again, because he's at De La Salle and gets limited reps all the time, doesn't have stats that are going to jump off the page to you. But once again, Cal just absolutely terrific. Um, with what they did to, to piggyback on that it's funny I forgot him because I remember saying on you know in a, a radio interview that he might be the sneaky most significant signing that Cal actually made in this class from a talent standpoint he's not up to the Jermaine Terry Akili Calhoun Kalen Elams or kind of ranking but if you look at the kind of Pied Piper effect that he may have at De La Salle and in the East Bay I mean He's a De La Salle kid who's from Pittsburgh, 
these next two classes at De La Salle in Pittsburgh are going to be phenomenal, whether it's the 2022 class with Brody Tongaloa and Zeke Berry, the 2023 class at Pitt, where you already have Rashid Williams and Jaden Rashada with Cal offers. You've also got, you know, some of the players that have transferred in, um, Israel Polk, whose brother Makai is already at Cal, uh, Kenyon Higgins, who moved over from Liberty. I mean, Pitt and De La Salle these next two years have a ton of talent, and they all look up to Lou. They all either play with Lou on the seven-on-seven circuit or with him at De La Salle, and that's one of those keep-the-guy-home type of recruits that ends up making other guys down the line want to stay home. And I think that, you know, he might not get the attention that some of the other guys in this class did from a talent standpoint, but in terms of the overall effect he may end up having on Cal's classes the next two years, I think he nailed it on the head. That's a huge one. You know, every year they talk about De La Salle, you know, the, the, the dynasty is going to be broken, blah, blah, blah. But actually, you know, over the next couple of years, Pittsburgh, they, they might have a shot. They, they might actually have a shot, believe it or not, uh, with what they've got. I remember well, going to the De La Salle-Mona Vista game in 2016, and that was the game that the streak was finally going to come to an end in Northern California. <laughs> you know, you had Jake Hainer, you had Eric Cromenhoek, and Nate Landman, yeah, yeah. you know, all those guys. And I think, what, Tuli Latula Gastanola ended those hopes really quickly. That game was fun because that was the first time I'd ever seen Henry Toto. And so – Whenever you think, oh, this is the year De La Salle Street, there's always some sophomore that comes along that you're like, well, nope, not yet. And then the next three years, he becomes the star. Exactly. Well, it's funny. It's funny you throw Monta Vista in there because technically they did have another East Bay guy on this year's signing list, though he was really a class of 2020 grad, which was Nate Regina out of Monta Vista. Uh, he gray shirted <laughs> this fall. And so he actually went on there early signing list now in December as a guy who's now signed there uh, since he waited on his signing there. Um, you know, it's funny. We watch football nowadays and we see so much spread, spread, spread this, spread that. And yet here in the East Bay, three of the top eight to nine signees out of the Bay area are tight ends. Um, we look at Brock Bowers and Jermaine Terry. We've already talked about another one. Once again, willing to go out of state out of the Bay area, Christian Peterson of Sarah uh, headed to Louisville. Um, you know, is, is this something that is more, you know, these guys are talented enough, of course, to play anywhere on the field in high school. Is this just more of a trend of what we see the college game needing coming out of the Bay area? Yeah, I think there's a couple of factors in the case, of like a guy like Peterson, it's, he had all these, it was weird. His recruitment, you know, he had ACC offers, he had big 12 offers yet none of the PAC 12 offers. And it's like, how many times are people going to realize Sarah produces some pretty good football players? And I think you're going to see more and more schools nationally recruit the West Coast because of their willingness to leave. But I also think, like you said, I think there's more and more teams that are using the tight ends as a vital part of the offense. And it's interesting because there's a lot of West Coast schools that really use their tight ends really well. But you go look and you, you see that, hey, let's, you know, that, that was kind of like the last great unknown position out west that national schools kind of waited to recruit it always seemed like it was the pac-12 that had the best tight ends in the country and notre dame but now you see a lot more national programs they see these guys they're playing year-round seven on seven so when you look at a christian peterson he might be in an offense that's very much a ground control offense but then you go watch his seven on seven film you watch his off-season film and you realize this guy's a weapon as a pass catcher and i think that's where you know to go along with the whole spread 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 is the influx of seven on seven out West and just how much 
you know, how many passing tournaments these guys are doing, whether it's with their school or non-scholastic teams, these guys are much more adept to the passing game. And that makes them much more desirable by national programs. But even if their film, their high school film might not show a lot of them being used as an offensive weapon, they know that they can be used as an offensive weapon. And so, you know, Peterson's a guy that I think the Pac-12 is going to greatly regret passing on because I think he's one of the, we, like you said, he's, I think we had him as the number three tight end uh, in Northern California in this class. And, and a guy that I think has just, I wouldn't say he hasn't been utilized well because the way Sarah utilizes that offense to winning a state championship playing for another one works. But I just think his best attributes will be used in college. Yeah. And so the PAC 12 kind of looked past him cause maybe because he, he didn't get the reps at Sarah, you know, in, in game. I mean, his dad is a very good friend of mine. I've known the kid since he was this tall, uh, since he was, just, since he was like uh, the same age as, as Nate's son, Carson. Uh, and, you know, I mean, his dad was telling me the Pac-12 is, you know, they're 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 passing on him. But like you said, you know, he has a lot of talent, and I think he's going to show well at Louisville. Well, the the Pac-12, however, did not pass on some of the other top talent from the Bay Area. Um, Brandon already hit on, obviously, probably the, you know the number one person coming out of the Bay Area with Troy Franklin headed from Menlo Atherton up to Oregon. Um, but the Northwest is dotted with some guys leaving this area, you know, Oregon state grabbed one of my favorite all around athletes from Northern California in JT burn out of Carmel. Um, phenomenal three sport athlete, great post player in basketball, heck of a baseball player uh, snagged him as a tight end as well. And then Washington state snagged Sion Nunnally out of Cardinal Newman and Washington. You, men you mentioned Joe Mixon earlier, Brandon, well, his high school freedom, though the kid has never played a down for freedom yet. Grab Vince Nunley, uh, Washington did DB. Um, the last time he set foot on the field was with Ensenal in the NCS title Division Four title game. Uh, he's at Freedom now, uh, hoping to play a senior year there. Though he has not set foot, like I said, yet on the field for the Falcons. So each of you know each of the Oregon schools and Washington schools grabbed a top recruit. Um, you know, lo looking around, um, we mentioned Nebraska there. Um, you know, San Diego State grabbed a couple guys. Uh, DJ Bryant, probably another real kind of under. Uh, kind of guy flew under the radar from San Leandro. And I don't think a lot of people even knew here in the Bay Area that he was headed Division One, much less to Mountain West School in San Diego State. Um, and interestingly enough, this is something I really wanted to ask you about, Brandon. San Jose State, 7-0, recruiting stock probably through the roof. Because of that, it seems like they were really able to attract more Southern California talent right now. Really only one Bay Area guy in the early signing period uh, Kai Peterson Davison out of Marin Catholic on the offensive line. What do you think that shows with, you know, San Jose State really built this team with local talent. You look at this signing class and it's dotted with a lot of, you know, three-star kind of guys from down South. I think that just speaks to where some of the ties that their assistant coaches have. Kevin Cummings is a receivers coach. He's a San Fernando Valley native, played at Crespi High School down there before going to Oregon State. You know, Brent Brennan is a San Jose guy, but he obviously – has ties to the Southland when he was at UCLA, when he recruited at, when he was at Oregon state, he recruited Southern California. I remember going to a game in 2010 when he was still an assistant at San Jose state the first time. And he was at Crenshaw lock watching D'Anthony Thomas and I think Joseph Pollard, who he recruited to San Jose state, you know, so he knows the Southland. So I think it's one of those where you've got those ties in the Southland, use them. You've got your NorCal in the back pocket. But I also think that, 
you're really going to see the bump with those Bay Area kids in the 2022 class because you typically see the bump in a successful season in the following recruiting class, especially now with so many early commitments. The season's already done by the time guys are commitments or the season's getting started by the time guys' recruitments are done. So you don't have as much time to impress them, but you really make that impression on the next class. And I think that, you know, one of the fascinating things about this class was how, how many guys from the Bay Area and Fresno State signed. Courtney Morgan, who was at San Jose State <laughs> with Alonzo Carter, with Brent Brennan a year ago as a director of recruiting, made a push in that backyard. Now you And so you see a couple of Fresno guys committed to San Jose State. But I think 2022 is when you really start to see the product of Northern California kids really feeling San Jose State. And San Jose State kids or San Jose State really hitting those Northern California kids hard. You can stay home. You can win a Mountain West championship. You can succeed here. And you don't have to do it by going too far from home. Real Coach Carter, uh, I've known him for a long time. And, you know, I actually helped him get that moniker. Okay, I, I won't go into the story. But, you know, uh, I know one thing. He was dancing a little bit uh, last weekend. And he's a dancer, by the way, because before he became a coach, a lot of people don't know it, but he danced with MC Hammer. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And he, you know, one of the things, too, that's going to be fascinating. I don't I'm not here to speak about coaching changes and college coaching changes, but I know that Brent Brennan over the next couple of years is going to be pursued for bigger, high profile head coaching jobs. He's a Pac-12 alum playing at UCLA. He coached at Arizona, even though he was at he's from San Jose. He also coached at Oregon State. So you've got to think a guy like him has his sights set on the Pac-12 at some point. But there's a coach on that San Jose State staff who's been a high school head coach. He's been a Juco head coach. He's had success at both places. He's put dudes in the NFL. He's a Bay Area guy. He's got one of the Bay Area's favorite sons right there pulling and supporting him at every step. Maybe that could be a candidate down the road for the San Jose State job, the real Coach Carter. The real Coach Carter. We've got a few minutes left. A uh, couple of things. I, I want you to talk a little bit about the Avery Strong Foundation uh, and, you know, you just came back from Alaska at a showcase up there that was part of the Avery Strong uh, was it was part was sponsoring it. Uh, talk a little bit about that. Also, I'd, I'd like to know what your feeling is about the 2022s and the fact that there some of their scholarships could be in jeopardy with, you know, the fact that some seniors are going to be allowed to come back, et cetera. And, and what do you think the route is going to be for those kids? Are they going to go JUCO? What's going to happen there? It's been fascinating. I've talked to a couple of Pac-12 schools that didn't have full classes last Wednesday. They had kind of a lot of spots left to fill. And I asked, you know, are you going to fill those spots in the February signing period or what? And a number of schools have said, and a few of the Pac-12 schools I've talked to said this, we don't know what the hard cap's going to be set by the NCAA, whether it's 95, whether it's 105. But just because the NCAA is allowing eligibility for these players, we still are on the hook to pay for them. So one school, one coach in particular said Alabama and LSU, we don't have their budget. They're going to be able to have 105 guys on scholarship mm -hmm. and they're not even going to miss a beat. But for us, we have a hard enough time affording 85 guys on scholarships. So now we got 15, 20 seniors that want to stick around and play. We got 15, 20 guys coming in. How are we going to balance the books that way? So there's a lot of schools that they signed this 2021 class under the guys that hey, we're going to understand we have to have a bigger roster. Roster management is becoming more key. But I think that's, like you said, Harry, I think that's where the 2022 class becomes the most effective. Not only have they lost, in my opinion, 
what's now the most crucial spring of their career, which is their junior or sophomore spring. But now they lose the most crucial year in the football cycle, their junior year. And with recruiting sped up a year, not having the spring, not having their fall junior season is going to make offers that much more difficult to attain when you don't have any recent relevant context or film. And so the 2022 kids are going to be hit hard. The other thing that colleges have said that they'd rather hit the transfer portal than take a chance on an unknown kid that doesn't have any film just because he's in the 21 or the 2022 class. They'd rather go hit a kid that's in the portal who they've at least scouted and evaluated before. So once again, those 2022 kids, if there's no season this spring, I worry more for the 22 kids and the 21s. The 21s still have their junior year. Yes, there's some late bloomers, late emergers that are affected, but assuming there's no budget cuts, City College San Francisco, College of San Mateo, Diablo Valley College, and all those JUCOs all of a sudden might be sitting on some gold mines of talent coming in with kids that are rather go the JUCO route than just take lower hanging fruit and go D2, D3, NAIA. Well, that it's also affordable too, because if, if they're, if they're forced into a pay to pay to play, you know, where there's no scholarships, they're going to have to go to the JUCOs. Well, and the kids out here prove year in and year in and year out that that path pays dividends for them, whether it be a Kobe gross going from Pittsburgh to DVC signing with Florida state, whether it be a combo of cam Nathan and Timmy Dorsey going from Antioch to Laney and both signing rights to go on now. You know, they've proven that that path provides dividends. Um, one thing I'm interested to see, Brandon, and, and we still want you, we want you to speak about the Avery Strong Foundation, but and this part Harold and I were talking about is I am interested to see, and I agree, the 22s will be much more affected. But for 21s, I'm interested to see the impact on the mid-majors and the D2s and the NAIAs, the ones who maybe didn't play this fall and are and definitely going to see kids come back. And we don't normally see those kids sign in December. We normally see those kids sign in February and I'm wondering how much reduced or impacted that class might be this year. Well, if you look at the big sky, I mean, there was three or four schools that didn't even announce recruiting classes last week because their classes were so small that I have a little visitor. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Their classes were so small that they didn't see the need to announce a class, but also because their, their classes are small because they haven't filled needs. They had to wait for the quote unquote big dogs to eat before they get fed. And I think there's going to be a, it wouldn't surprise me in 2024, 2025, when the NFL draft comes around, we see more D2, D3 guys get drafted, maybe more D2 FCS probably than D3, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least bit if that ends up happening because those schools that, you know, normally don't get the sleepers now, they kind of fall into their laps because of the uncertainty. So it's going to be very fascinating to see the flip side of that is once again, the state of California took another blow where, my alma mater, Azusa Pacific, dropped football last week. As a D2 program, the only Division II program in the state of California, you had Humboldt State drop it a few years ago. Now APU, you've got three FCS programs in the state, uh, no Division II, and then you have D3 and no NAI. So now that's another option for California players that's no longer on the table in state. So you've gone from three years ago where 50 extra players a year could have gone to Humboldt State or Azusa Pacific, now that's just that much more difficult. So, you know, the pandemic, if it didn't already make recruiting tough enough, now less options are there. So it's going to be fascinating to see how schools kind of adjust their recruiting in 2022 and beyond. Very good. And um, Harold, I'm not sure what we're looking like on time right now, but 
Brandon, you know, we, we, like we said, we would like you to tell our listeners a little bit about the Avery Strong Foundation. And then if we have a few more minutes, we can wrap it up after that. Yeah. So just got back from Alaska. My son, Cade, and I went up to Alaska. Um, one of my close friends, Taylor Barton, former Washington, uh, University of Washington quarterback, started shortly after Avery passed away. My daughter in 2016, he started Avery Strong Showcases and did some in uh, the Bay Area, Southern California, Oregon, Washington. And this is the first time he decided to take one to Alaska. So my son and I went up there. There was about nearly 100 kids in Alaska that were at this two-day tournament. And the proceeds benefit the Avery Huffman DIPG Foundation, which is a foundation my wife Amanda and I created in 2016, uh, shortly after our daughter Avery passed away of a terminal brain tumor called DIPG. And she fought cancer for seven and a half months before she ultimately succumbed to it. But her fight inspired so many, and it also motivated us to fight back. When the doctors told us there was nothing that can be done, we said, okay, well, there's going to be something done in our lifetime. So we started the foundation, and given my relationship with so many in the football community, there have been a number of camps, seven-on-seven tournaments, showcases that have been geared around me sharing Avery's story with these recruits, proceeds going to the foundation, and then kids have an opportunity to keep playing the sport that they love and the game that they love. And, you know, even recently, I, I spoke with a kid who was at one of the showcases at one of the uh, national prep showcases, and he wants to be a doctor. And his grandfather was a surgeon. He said that after hearing my story, he went and researched what DIPG was and you know, how he wants to do something to help those families. And so even if one kid there hears about this story and it inspires him to pursue a career in medicine, maybe that's the key and the gateway to finding a cure for this. And so that was the whole point of our foundation was to support and, you know, really help people with research for this disease to fight it, but also to inspire people to pursue their dreams. And if that dreams leads them to finding a cure, even better. And this week in Alaska, we had a lot of kids get an opportunity to show what they can do, show that Alaska shouldn't be slept on. And it was great to be able to share every story there while also seeing some pretty darn good football players who just happen to be ignored because of where they're located. And then on top of that, have a little fun in subarctic temperatures in the middle of December during five hours of daylight. You know, go ahead, Nate. I'm sorry. And I'll just say this to all of our listeners. As an athletic director, I'm a little bit guarded, obviously, when it comes to who I trust our student athletes with. And there are a lot of people out there in recruiting. Um, There are a lot of people out there with showcases. And so for any of our listeners, one thing I will say is that if you are looking to contact anybody um, and, and know the right way to fly with all this, Brandon Huffman's your guy. Um, 24-7 sports, obviously, reputable, reputable organization. And everything is done through it, not only for a great cause, but run by people who have the right connections. They truly do exist. Um, we see a lot of showcases out there or supposed showcases, camps with connections that actually may or may not exist. These guys do. Uh, these guys are the ones. And as you could tell, if you've been listening this whole time, you hear everybody that they're connected with and the depth of knowledge about every recruit on this list. I don't think there's a single name I've thrown out there, Brandon, where you didn't know their story. And to me, that's phenomenal because the Bay Area is pretty deep and it's only a small sl- slice of your recruiting territory. You know, I love any reason to go to the Bay. I'm always up for it. And that's why it's always my favorite trip of the year when I go down and do my swing in, in the fall. Can't wait to get back and do it. But I love going to the Bay because there's so many great football players. And, and like you said, they it's just a small slice of the region, but it also is a big part of 
why I love this job because there's so many great players that have come from that region that I've gotten to follow when they were kind of no-namers to now being potential Heisman Trophy finalists like young Mr. Harris from old Antioch High School. Brandon, we appreciate you coming on. Your pearls of wisdom are are absolutely fathomless. I mean, you, you know, you've got a you've got a mind like a steel trap. You seem to remember everything and anything there is to know about people over the years. And we really, really appreciate you coming on and your support of our of our boys from the Prep to Prep Foundation, Mateo Arenas and Dylan Freeman also. They're awestruck by being able to meet you. And you know, they listened to your story uh, at the Vacaville camp and Mateo actually wrote about it uh, as being one of the highlights of his experience at that, at that event. So, you know, you've got a lot to offer and we really appreciate it. Nate, why don't you take us out? All right. Well, like I say, we just want to thank Brandon Huffman, Harold Ben here for hosting the prep to prep beyond the game podcast. And, you know, if you, uh, if you're a recruiter who maybe we didn't get to in here, Watch out for our wrap-up coming up on the prep to prep website And once again, if you guys want to see where things rank nationally, and especially here in the Bay Area, give Brandon Huffman a follow on Twitter. Check out the 24-7 Sports website. Once again, thank you, ever all of our listeners with Beyond the Game.